1: So, so the goal of today's podcast is to help me be better at pronouncing names, words, mm-hmm. different kind of words, <clears throat> right? If it's a Wednesday, day, if it's government, if it's lethargy, le- lethargy, things lethargy like that. That's amid. the goal of today, and I'm willing, I'm open to it. Just so you guys yeah. know, we have a special guest with us who uh, came all the way from UK, Majid Nawaz. uh, If you don't know about Majid Nawaz, he's a founding chairman of Killium, a British think tank focused on counterterrorism, specifically against Islamists. He's a former member of the Islamist group Hezbollah
2: Tahrir. That's good. We got it. it. In 2012,
1: he published an autobiography, Radical, and has since become a prominent critic of Islam. Uh, islamism in the uk his second book islam and the future of tolerance in 2015 co-authored with atheist author sam harris was published october of 2015 Meji thank you so much for being a guest
2: it's good to meet you guys
1: yes yeah. it's uh, uh, we've been looking forward to this this is Pleasure. an interesting conversation to have with you so for some that don't know your background if you don't mind taking a moment and sharing your background that'd be great
2: how long do you have yeah we got two hours <laughs> um, <laughs> I could start from the beginning, but um, it, I'll give you the shortened version and you can unpick it as you like. Then, Absolutely. Perhaps, is, uh, so I joined Hezbollah Tahrir at the age of 16 after facing uh, some very severe violent uh, racist attacks where I grew up in Essex in the UK, being um, the number of people that looked like me you could count on perhaps one hand. Uh, and it was a very different time. We were the first generation um, born and raised in the UK to muslim parents and so it was um, it was a, a an interesting experiment because we are the first I mean 45 years old now so we were the for- first generation to have this um these questions around identity in the west being muslim uh, our parents as migrants never really had to face those questions because they were always the migrants who came so they were still always in my case my parents came from Pakistan they were Pakistani migrants in Britain but we being born and raised there had to kind of grapple with these questions of what it meant to be a Muslim born in the west so when we were facing a lot of that violent racism and I'm talking machete attacks hammer attacks when I say violent it was brutal Um, I witnessed my first murder at 17 uh, stabbing to death um, who was doing the attacking? These were native-born British. So th- this was a group of uh, neo-Nazis. Uh, they affiliated with Combat 18, uh, which is a if um, it was formed um, as a paramilitary organization in Northern Ireland by um, serving soldiers who were fighting uh, the Irish Republicanism there, and they became uber-nationalist in that sense. And uh, 18 stands for the uh, order of the letters in the alphabet of Adolf Hitler's initials. So A being one and H being eight. These were guys, they weren't messing around. Uh, multiple friends of ours had either had hammers put to their heads and, and stabbed all over their bodies. And we, I'd been, as I say, before that murder at 17, but most of my, uh, I witnessed more knife fights in my teenage years than most people, uh, and participated in, than most people will have in their entire lives. Um, that has a brutalizing effect on the psychology of a young boy. So at 16, um, with the Bosnia genocide unfolding in Europe against, again, in Srebrenica in, 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 in particular, against Muslims, I became very, very uh, disassociated from society, uh, became very uh, angry with the world. And at 16, as I say, joined Hizb Tahrir. tahrir uh, That took me on another sort of chapter. It was a long journey. I ended up on their leadership. I ended up exporting the group from Britain to Denmark, to Pakistan where I was the, one of the first British Pakistani members to co-found the organization in Pakistan. Uh, we, uh, our aim was to create a global um, theocracy in the name of my faith tradition, which I still uh, adhere to and do not reject whatsoever, just to make that clear to everybody. What I critiqued was the politicization of that faith tradition. But the aim at the time, we wanted to create a global theocracy that would impose one reading of that faith tradition over society Um, by law. Ironically, a very European Westphalian concept, which was uh, 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 owed more to um, colonialism and the interwar uh, fascism period than it did to the tradition, to the pluralistic tradition of Islam. But that's what we discuss in that book you mentioned with Sam Harris. But um, I ended up, as I say, exporting this revolution to various countries. Ended up in Egypt. I landed one day before the 9-11 attacks. And the security climate around the world completely changed. Um, And we, though we were non-violent, we were, if you like, um, we were the Trotskys to the Stalins of that kind of world. So we were more on the intellectual revolutionary side as opposed to violence. 9-11 changed the uh, calculation for everybody. And in Egypt, they had a a security roundup after 9-11. And we were rounded up with hundreds of Egyptians. Um, uh, We were then blindfolded. Um, We had our hands tied behind our backs it with rags. They'd run out of handcuffs. They handcuffs. They ran it up so many people. Uh, we were then taken into their dungeons where they began torturing everybody with uh, electrocution. Eventually, uh, we were after a period of solitary confinement. I think about three and a half months. Eventually, we were put on trial, and I was sentenced to five years as a political prisoner, tried by an emergency court in Egypt, not under the constitutional setup. Uh, but tried in the state of emergency the Hosni Mubarak had kept in that country since the assassination of Anwar Sadat in 1981. Uh, The country never left the state of emergency, Um, so they were able to arbitrarily detain people. They had, forget Guantanamo Bay, to be honest, it was a picnic compared to what Mm. we saw. Uh, They had people in in prisons without charge and without trial for over 20 years. Um, But in addition to the torture, which wasn't just stress positions, as it is, um, and I say just obviously every form of torture is um, is abhorrent. But what we see in 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 the press about um, uh, Guantanamo uh, Bay and even Abu Ghraib was nothing compared to what was going on inside these prisons. Uh, all uh, mind you, while Tony Blair was taking free holidays, um, mm-hmm. being hosted by Hosni Mubarak, while we were in those prisons, as uh, the letters have recently been leaked, where Sherry Blair, his wife, has been discussing those free holidays. Uh, I don't forget things like that. But either Mm. way, um, we were sentenced to five years, at which point we were adopted by Amnesty International as prisoners of conscience, because, as I say, there was no suggestion, even in the trial, of any violence. Uh, And I spent the next five years, in uh, four and a bit, to be precise, in Mazra Atorah prison uh, with the uh, surviving assassins of the former president, Anwar Sadat, with the leaders and founders of all of the jihadi as well as Islamist groups in Egypt at the time. Uh, the leaders and founders of Gamal Islamiya. You're was, all
1: in there together.
2: In there together. As I say, <clears throat> the assassins of Anwar Sadat were there. Those who weren't executed in the case, uh, they all became friends of mine. The, the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, um, uh, Dr. Mohamed Badir, who wasn't the leader at the time he is now. Mohammed Morsi, who since died, he became the leader after Mubarak was overthrown. Uh, Ayman Noor was a liberal prisoner from Hizb uh, So we had uh, pretty much, it was a political university. How long were you guys all together? Um for the entire time in that prison. So I was there for just over four years. You know, so in, th- in is, is this,
1: if, if I'm painting a picture of my mind, was this daily conversations, debates, you know, going through history, you know ideas being talked about is that kind of how it was
2: absolutely i i was a student at the time i was studying arabic i'm a graduate um in arabic in the arabic language from so part of the university of london and that's ostensibly why i went to egypt so i continued with my studies i spent that time in uh prison studying uh all uh, all aspects of islamic theology um islamic exegesis uh, uh Quran recitation and memorization Arabic language the fusha the classical arabic language usul al fiqh uh, which is the jurisprudence ilm al hadith the uh, uh, science of hadith interpretation uh, it because we had uh, people in there that there was no rhyme or reason as to who was thrown in there other than suspicion of a, of a, you know by a, a dictator so you had genuine scholars in there as well and we i spent most of my time studying and who, debating who was who was most
1: uh, uh, convincing and simply because they were good at debating, and who was who was most convicted in their beliefs.
2: I have very little difficulty differentiating between polemicists and uh, substance, because I spent most of my life training other people in how to uh, argue and, and convince people. So for me, it wasn't about polemics. And um,
1: you spend uh, most of your life teaching people how to argue and debate.
2: Yeah, because Hezbollah's methodology was ideological propaganda. Um, we we trained people in. Uh, In in some of the tactics you saw uh, during the COVID period, which we can come to, uh, weren't new to me at all. Uh, We would train people in in the methods of dissemination of ideas for the purposes of ideological warfare. Um, And that's why we were put in jail, because that was deemed very dangerous. Our our purpose was to recruit army officers uh, and to eventually convince them to instigate military coups. Did you succeed? I've recruited a few army officers, yeah. yeah, In Pakistan and... uh, and, um, Mainly in Pakistan, actually, the, the the people I spoke to at the time.
1: So if you can if you can go back and and the again for you to be in there, it's kind of like a story of somebody saying, yeah, you know, I was in Rucker, you know, a Park, and I was there, and uh, for about two years, it was me, Michael, you know, such and such, and Joe, Kobe, and all these. Guys. I mean, obviously, these guys come from different areas, but if you put all of them at the same time and they're all think tank for two years, what are those games like? So what are the conversations like? So well, for me, yeah. what I'm asking you is. Who was most convincing where you sat there and you said, that's a very good point they're making for doing this? For example, if we make an argument of U.S. is the biggest enemy and here's what they're doing, and you're like, okay, that's a very good argument I've never heard before, versus who was 100% convicted that you couldn't sway them at all based on your memories?
2: So the, by the time we got in, there was a movement afoot in Egypt and across the Islamic world of what was called the murajaat, uh, which is the revisions. Of jihadist ideology, and uh, there were books written uh, by some of the leaders of these jihadi groups, uh, by the leaders of Gamal Islamiya, for example. I still have those books at home in Arabic with my hand-written annotations on the sidelines of those books, and they, these were revisions of jihadist thought that were, uh, that I think, were profoundly impactful, and they were uh, genuine and uh, really influential in convincing a lot of these uh, more hardcore militant ideologues that violence isn't the way to bring about change. Isn't? Uh, yeah. Uh, terroristic violence is not the way to bring about political change. So they, they were, um, they were uh, conversations we were having, as I say, with uh, former members, founders, and leaders of Gamal Islamiyya. Um, the assassins of Sadat had also come to those conclusions and had abandoned their former jihadist ideology. If Islamism is the desire to impose one version of Islam over society, uh, jihadism is the use of force to bring about Islamism. Just to be clear, and when I use those, ter- those terms, that's what I mean. That's very distinct from Islam and jihad. Islam is a, is a faith tradition that is known. It's uh, one of the Abrahamic faiths. And uh, Allah in Aramaic means God. Jesus, when he spoke Aramaic, would say Allah or Elohim. Alaha. Allah has, uh, Alaha. Yeah. When it's Syrian Aramaic, That's we right. say exactly. Alaha. Absolutely. Yeah. So it just means the same word. It's yeah. the same uh, source. Uh, God, I don't use as a word because I think it's loaded in the English language. So even in English when I'm speaking, I prefer to say Allah, just so people understand that um, ultimately we're speaking of the same subject matter here. And and Islam in, in that sense is is distinct from Islamism, the desire to impose Islam over society. Jihad, coming back to those terms, again, means struggle. Uh, so in the verb, you can say ujahidu, it just means I struggle. Um, and then, of course, there are many various manifest, manifestations of struggle. Primarily, uh, we are our enemies is within us and our solution often and always actually is within us as well. So struggle Uh, should be seen in that context of the struggle struggle to overcome ourselves. Um, It can be uh, a struggle against the other in many instances, such as occupation. I'm no pacifist. If somebody invades Britain, I will fight. And so I think that um, jihadism, though, is is, is is the use of force to impose Islamism. So that's why I define these terms. So we're not talking of Islam and jihad. Back to your question, I haven't forgotten. Um, in, in the prisons, there were people that were still subscribing to the Islamist and jihadist ideologies and wanted to either use force to impose that on others or take over a system and do so. But most of the, the, the leaders and founders of those organizations by then had come around to this idea uh, that violence wasn't the way. So ironically, we were the ideologues when we, were, when we entered that jail. Now, ordinarily, when you go through torture, uh, it makes you even more angry, even more um, uh, entrenched in your view and even less willing to compromise because of the anger and because of the uh, inability to separate the pain and the anguish and the trauma from what you experienced from being able to think clearly. I don't know, for whatever reason, in my case, I spent those five years debating and discussing by the end of it. I could I and I read all those books I mentioned the Murajaat or the revisions of the, in the jihadist thinking. By the end of it, even though I didn't leave the group until a year after my uh, departure from Masala Torah prison, I could no longer sustain my own conviction uh, that what I had thought was Islam, the faith, uh, and therefore needed to be proselytized. Uh, was what I had, had come to believe. I could no longer sustain that conviction, and so I had to uh, uh, leave. So I'd say I became influenced by these people that you were asking of, those that in their older years had matured. and Any in specific their wisdom.
1: one, any one above the other?
2: No, no, it was... no, no it was, Collective. Yeah, it was a collective group of... Um, of it, and it was so diverse and, <clears throat> and different. I mean, I mentioned Ayman Noor from Hezbollah. He was a liberal political prisoner. We had... Um, uh, we had uh Sa'ad Din Ibrahim was uh, quite a well-known Egyptian sociologist who was who was jailed for questioning Mubarak's attempt uh to, to, to give power to his son afterwards, Jamal Mubarak. Um and yet we had communists in there. Obviously the majority were Islamists and jihadists, but just mm. to give you an idea, there were there were people that are converted to Christianity that were thrown in jail for being apostates from Islam to Christianity, and there were there were people that converted to Islam that were thrown in jail. I and mean, we had a running joke uh, at the time in prison that in under Hosni Mubarak's Egypt, if you change your mind from anything to anything, it doesn't matter which way you go, thinking is what, wow. what would get you put into prison. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so imagine the diversity of thought. It was really, for me, that was my real university, to be honest.
0: I bet. Yeah. I can only imagine. I have a question for you on this diversity of thought, yeah. and this sort of conglomerate hodgepodge of completely different ideologies i, I kind of want to get to the heart of the biggest differences and the biggest similarities between all these quote-unquote terrorist groups right so isis al-qaeda the taliban hezbollah hamas the list goes on and on Boko haram uh, what's not they're not all the same they all have different ideologies what is the most common thread with all these groups and then distinguishments between all of them
2: the common thread is that they are all being weaponized and manipulated by various intelligence agencies across the world. That's the common thread. They're being
0: weaponized by intelligence agencies yeah,
2: and manipulated. Yeah. How? Uh, So these are proxy wars. What you're seeing in Sudan going on right now is an example of a proxy war. But let's take ISIS as an example. Um, By now it's well established. I'll give one case study, which is actually a human and and sorrowful story. Shamima Begum um, is a former British citizen uh, who had her passport stripped. She was uh, an underage child when she was groomed online by ISIS uh, to convince her to travel to Syria for the purposes of marrying an ISIS fighter. And I say marrying... Uh, because it wasn't really. It's child sexual exploitation. She was underage. She was in school. Uh, and she uh, somehow managed to get over there. Uh, long story short, she's now in one of those camps, like uh, Camp Al Hawl. She's in one of those camps where they're holding the wives and children of ISIS fighters. Uh, these are prisons in which children are born. Um, it's recently been revealed that her smuggling from Britain, from her, remember, a school girl, yeah, from Britain to join ISIS and, 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 become sexually exploited by these uh, terrorists was facilitated by somebody working for Canadian intelligence. That's no longer even in doubt. Um, and so what you end up realizing is the British government stripped her of her passport uh, to punish her for the, the crime of traveling over to, to join uh, or marry, uh, in quote quotation marks, an ISIS fighter. Uh, but actually it was her, her being smuggled out there was facili- facilitated by Canadian intelligence. It turns out that we in the West were arming some of those fighters like Jabhat al-Nusra, which was Al-Qaeda in Syria because we wanted to overthrow Hosni Mubarak, um, not Hosni Mubarak, um, Assad in, in Syria. So mm-hmm. the, 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 my work up until the COVID period was to challenge a lot of the ideological underpinning that justified uh, some of this thinking and that I also in the intellectual, not violent sense, succumbed to. However, when you also then want a a fuller picture of it, you have to realise where do the weapons come from? Hmm. Where does the training come from? Uh, You see with Afghanistan and how the Taliban now have more Black Hawk helicopters than the entire British army because of Biden's uh, absolutely cowardly uh, and and shameful way in which he withdrew. I've never been for the occupation, but the way in which he cut and run in that way was shameful and left them with all those weapons. Mm-hmm. So our own <clears throat> actions also have to be put into the picture to understand. Now, as I say, what one of the things they all have in common is that they are being weaponized for to fight proxy wars. And invariably, you see, the case of Syria demonstrates that very clearly uh, because of our desire to remove Assad, who... Uh, I come from a background where all Arab dictators have been our enemy. I have no sympathy for Assad. Uh, but I, what I wouldn't want to ever accept is that we replace Assad with al-Qaeda and ISIS, hmm. which is what we were effectively doing, is what Trump brought to an end, by the way. Um, and I think to give you one final example, take Ukraine. And the Azov Nazis, who aren't even neo-Nazis, the actual Nazis—they come from the Bandera tradition, which is the surviving elements of Nazism—and the collaborators in uh, in that uh, in Ukraine from the era of uh, uh, Nazism up until today, they are still there. Now, Azov. Now, every country has racists, but Azov is a battalion that was integrated into the Ukrainian army and and, and formally became their national guard. So the Ukrainian national guard is the Azov battalion. As of our Nazis, this is not in dispute. This is not a opinion. This is a matter of fact. I, for 10 years, ran the world's first and leading counter-extremism organization. It was our job to brief prime ministers and presidents on who is an extremist. I have met in that pursuit Uh, George Bush, Tony Blair, David Cameron, more heads of state than I can imagine, one-on-one talking like this. I am telling you, as of our Nazis, this is not in uh, dispute, it's a fact. Uh, They have Nazi insignia, and yet we're sending weapons and funds to Nazis who are integrated into the Ukrainian army. That's like saying that because we wanted to get rid of Assad, we're going to fund ISIS. You can't uh, run the world in a way where the ends justify the means, because then you have all what people call collateral damage. Imagine that in the intellectual side of things, you you are we are funding and wep and arming people who who have these extremist ideologies, uh, and then we're surprised that these ideologies spread. Now, my job then becomes harder because it's not just against jihadism that I stand, but of course Nazism, obviously, which is how I ended yeah. up in the first place, becoming radicalized. So you've got people like us saying, look, you know, the world should be about Peace, unity, love. And and meanwhile, the um, governments that we are attempting to counsel in that regard are doing the exact opposite by arming and funding these militia uh, all over the world. Can I just give you,
0: this isn't a pushback, this is more of a follow-up, but it'd be almost like if you were starting a company, Mm. right? And you go to someone like a PBDI or starting a company right now, and we go to some intelligence agency for seed capital or to raise some money. Okay, so maybe they invest in our business, but at the end of the day, we started the business. So it almost seems like you're saying that the intelligence agencies are facilitating or propping up a lot of these uh, terrorist groups. And that's like if you're peeling an onion, that might be the second, third, fourth, fifth layer but the bottom layer of the onion, of ISIL, of Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, is the group itself. It's not the intelligence agencies.
2: Oh, it's Am a, I wrong? It's, no, it's a Yes and no. It's a, it's a mixture of both because some of their leaders are actually infiltrators from the security services. I mean, there's only so far I can go into this without being too scandalous and yeah. uh, clearly, well, Let's get scandalous here. Uh, but also lives are at stake. So yeah. I, I think that it's important to recognize that, in especially ISIS, ISIS mm-hmm. itself is a creation Of these proxy wars, especially ISIS. Where you're correct is the history. Yes, you're absolutely correct. So how, uh, um, let's start with, say, um, Islamic Jihad in Egypt. How that began uh, is the Muslim Brotherhood were attempting to create their own version of this kind of theocratic thinking and bring that about in Egypt, um, which, by the way, that one year that Morsi was in power, the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, after, Morsi, yeah. after Mubarak's overthrow. I mean, ultimately, as uh, there's a BBC Hard Talk interview of me with Stephen Sacker, where I'm criticizing the Muslim Brotherhood government. And he says to me, but weren't they elected? I said, yeah, just like Bush was, and I can still criticize George Bush. So I I do make the point that ultimately they were elected. They were better than a military dictatorship, which is, again, what we have now with Sisi. So my critique of them isn't to strip them of the fact that they were legitimately elected. But let's take the, the Brotherhood as an example. Before this all happened, because they've been around since the 1920s, um, they, they, they would be going about their proselytizing in Egypt. And of course, under the dictatorship, they weren't allowed and they would be thrown into the jails. Now, how they began treating them is there's a big fortress in Cairo. It's called al- Qula. Kula, al al-Din is the Saladin Fortress. It's now a tourist site, like the Tower of London. You go there, you go into the dungeons, the London dungeon. Anyone been to the London dungeon? Yes. You see all the waxworks um, yeah. of the torture they used to do to Yeah. It, yeah? So there's a fortress like that in, in Cairo, except it's not historic. It's, in our lifetime, it was a torture dungeon. And prisoners that I was with in Masrat prison were held in that fortress, which is an ancient fortress, but the regime had converted it to a torture dungeon. Now in that Khilat, khilat Salahuddin, the, the fortress, uh, they would get the Muslim Brotherhood prisoners and they would basically starve dogs for um, a long time. And then these starving dogs would be let loose in the solitary cell with these prisoners to uh, basically terrorize them Jeez. and torture them. Now, this kind of treatment, raping wives in front of husbands, torturing children in front of fathers to force confessions, is how jihadism emerged in the very prison I was held in. So Masra'a Torah prison is where Sayyid Qutb, the infamous uh, founding ideologue of modern-day jihadism, who wrote the book, The Das Kapital of Jihadism, called Milestones, or Ma'alim Tariq in Arabic. Now, uh, Milestones was written in the prison I was held in. Um, and it was written by a former Muslim Brotherhood, member. Now, what you said, by the way, Adam, and, and I didn't mean to say you're all wrong, because that's where what you said applies. This is an example where we have to take, Muslims have to take responsibility for what happened next. So he's very angry. He's They've witnessed all this torture. He then does what I, I did the opposite of this, right? He then uh, codifies a dogmatic, rigid way of thinking to make themselves feel better about the fact they're angry. And that's where Milestones came from. And that was the basis, the intellectual basis for uh, modern-day Al-Qaeda that emerged. So that's how, what you said correctly is how jihadism emerged is I don't think Sayyid Qutb was an intelligence operative. For, no, no, no. He was an angry man mm-hmm. who had been, witnessed all of him and his brothers witnessed torture and they are angry and then they codify their anger in, and justify it by Islam like everyone does in any every faith t- tradition. I mean, Inquisition and the Crusades are an example of that. So he codifies and justifies his anger and then writes it in a book, and that then, then takes off. So yes, that's how it began. But by the time you get to the end of it with ISIS, more so than not, ISIS is a creation of these proxy wars and intelligence. It is why... Uh, I have to be as candid as I am about this because we've got to. Everyone has to take responsibility for what's going on. Yeah, in uh, uh, world. Man, I, The world. name of the book, real quick, so we can pull that up. Oh, Milestones, Milestones. by Sayyid Qutb. It's it's um It's available in English. It's it's the pretty much the intellectual foundation for modern day jihadism. You compared
0: uh. it to Das Kapital.
2: Yeah, it's an inter, It's an it's it's one of the first examples of the uh, of a jihadist manifesto uh, manifesto. It's the articulation of jihadist thinking.
1: Uh, imagine yeah. i have I have two questions. So when uh, the torture at the prisons that yeah. like you were in, is it do they have like a regimented thing of how like they schedule it? Was it like an everyday thing? Was it ranking on who they thought was a bigger threat out that they wanted information? was it a was it a constant thing? And my second question was, with the Bush and Blair, you said you spoke to yeah. both of them how did how did that feel, and how did that play out sitting there talking with two people that started the Iraq war, started that which was just a, a snowball effect. Got rid of Saddam who started a lot of all these yeah. all these problems. Yeah.
2: Look, I think there's a, a political I, I, I'll say the word reckoning, mm-hmm. but I I mean political reckoning, yeah. not violent. Yeah, yeah, a, yeah. There's a political reckoning coming for, for um for a cabal or a clique of world leaders who are responsible on their side of it for much of this. So Bush is an example, Tony Blair's an example. Uh, They invaded Iraq on false pretenses. Mm -hmm. We now know all of that was based on a lie. Again, back to Adam, to your point, that's why I say we all have to take responsibility Mm -hmm. for the full picture here, yeah? And just like I believe, Muslims have to take responsibility to clean house as well, right? Which is what we've been doing for the last, uh, since uh, I left that group in 2008. Uh, w- with much sacrifice, but it's not easy to do what I do. Uh, and, and and me and my brothers, what we do is not easy uh, because as you can imagine, it's faced with a lot of pushback as well. Um, but everyone has to take responsibility. So there's a political reckoning coming because these guys um, ruined the entire Middle East. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is, I cannot overstate the damage that the invasion of Iraq and then, you know, with Afghanistan added to that, and then Syria and what happened there. I cannot overstate the damage that's done to the world and how difficult it's made uh, everyone's jobs. Mm-hmm. Um And they, they haven't stopped. I mean, during the COVID mandate period, um, again, for the record, I opposed every single COVID mandate and lost my job over it. I was a national radio broadcaster in the UK on the largest commercial radio station. But uh, I basically opposed every single mandate, masks. I flew, in fact, I flew with um, uh, to Tennessee without a mask on and, and posted a photo. And then the chief of staff of the governor wanted to meet me when I landed because he'd tell me about flying without a mask. It was surreal. But um, <laughs> we've got to, so just as, as, when that mandate period emerged and Tony Blair started again pushing for digital IDs and for synchronizing everybody up with the technocracy, these people want total Control. It's why we call them globalists. They want total technocratic control of everything we do, filtered through their systems, their infrastructure with no privacy so they can see and, and, and hear everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the same cabal that invaded Iraq. It's the same cabal that has been through the, the money laundering in Ukraine and, and pushing for more and more war and the securitization of our societies as a result of that. So there is a, I think there is a political reckoning that is long overdue. And and I think Trump is one manifestation of that political uh, reckoning. And in the UK, Nigel Farage is an example of what happens when you allow the establishment to get away with impunity for decades, committing crimes, invading countries. There's still a CBS 60 Minutes clip of Madeleine Albright, the late Madeline Albright. She's passed away, so I, I've met her as well. Mm-hmm. I won't say anything rude about dead people. That's uh, Prophet teaches us, um, he says, do not abuse the dead, for you only harm the living. So when we speak of the dead people, even if we oppose them vehemently, we speak in terms of uh, ideas and themes as opposed to making it personal. So she was asked by Leslie Stahl on CBS 60 Minutes that half a million children died in Iraq. This is the war before the invasion. And uh, this clip's still up online, but widely available. And Leslie Stahl, uh, who I've also met, because they did a 60-minute segment on me as well, but L- Leslie Stahl says to uh, Madeleine Albright, you know, that's half a million children, is the price worth it? And Madeline Albright says, yeah, we believe the price is worth it. Wow. Uh, and this is these these children died. Um, many believe from the effects of depleted uranium that was used in Iraq. But the you know you you've got a situation where the entire world has been ruined by this cabal who continue to act with impunity, even here in the United States of America. Um, I think
0: I think Vinny brought up a very good point about the Bush administration. Yeah. I guess my question to the follow up is what level of involvement should the United States play in the Middle East? Obviously we got out of Afghanistan, Iraq was a disaster. We saw what happened with ISIS and ISIL. Uh, but when, when when we leave the Middle East that opens up a vacuum for Russia to come in and Putin to do what he's want to do. China is investing in Iran and different uh parts of the Middle East. You know, obviously I don't I think we've learned the hard way. We can't just place our values of democracy and freedom into the Middle East and like, hey, go for it, guys. Yeah, yeah. But should America just completely vacate Middle East? Like no, what no, level no. of involvement should America I mean,
2: have? look, we, so let's start with, that's a really good, I think it's a good exploration here. Let's start with the aim. I think the aim should be um, a more multilateral world that works together. Uh, and so that doesn't mean Chinese domination. It doesn't mean Russian domination. So uh, uh, just over a year ago, I was on the JRE the Rogan uh, podcast and uh, um, I believe he speaks highly of you, Patrick. I, I saw a clip where he's very happy with you. Um, it, it, I was warning at the time before this whole Ukraine uh, saga sort of, and the FTX thing blew it up in the way it did. And I was saying, this is all a mistake because what we're doing is going to push Russia and China together. Well, that's what's happened since. Yeah. They've basically formed an alliance. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting because if you see what China's managed to do, nobody thought it would be possible to pull from under the feet of everybody, to pull the rug in the way that they have done between Saudi Arabia and Iran. China negotiated a peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which one hopes will bring an end to the slaughter in Yemen, where Mm -hmm. it's been horrific with children starving in the way that you see the images coming from Yemen. It's terrible. So the hopes that what we're seeing now, let's take the Abraham Accords, and UAE and Israel negotiating with each other. And now let's take Saudi and Iran negotiating with each other. The the Abraham Accords had American sponsorship. The Saudi Iran deal had Chinese sponsorship. If we can all recognize that this, the way forward isn't occupation, invasion, and funding wars, but funding and sponsoring peace, Mm-hmm. And these forms of negotiations, I'm I'm not opposed to either of them. The Abraham Accords, you may well be aware of them, Adam, yep. but the Abraham Accords.
0: Yitzhak Rabin. That's right. Clinton,
2: and, and, yeah. and, and, and it was just, you know, the idea that um, Israel can have uh, cooperation with the Middle East and trade, or the idea that Saudi and Iran can do so, neither should be rejected. We've got to stop these wars because nothing good comes from them. And they're all proxy wars. The one in Yemen uh, between the Houthis and the Yemeni authorities was a proxy war. The Houthis being uh, effectively backed by Iran and the Saudi backing the Yemeni authorities, and it led to mass slaughter, mass killing. Um, as Still said, going on to this day. That's right. But one hopes that this negotiated peace that's being uh, between Saudi and Iran, China has been sponsoring. So now, why I mention that is China has made an offer to Zelensky. So w- w- I've been a very vocal critic of China. I before my cancellation. I launched a—well, it eventually turned out to be a four—I uh, think it was four-day hunger strike um, while I was on air. And uh, the aim was to gather 100,000 signatures on a parliamentary website, which would trigger a debate in parliament to recognize the plight of the Uyghur Muslim people in China, who are an ethnic minority group that are being uh, targeted and discriminated against by the Chinese Communist Party, because, of course— the presence of any traditional religious identity under communism is a problem. How do you pronounce it? Um, I, I, that pronunciation I won't vouch for <laughs> yeah. because I don't speak the Uyghur language. Yeah. Well,
0: we've heard Uyghurs a That's million right. times. But, okay. So,
2: so the, um, Rahima Mahmoud is the head of the UK World Uyghur Congress. Okay. And she attempts to correct me when I say Uyghurs. Okay. Um, and the correction I can't vouch for. That, that, how you heard me pronounce it there isn't... Yeah. Don't take my well, you word ju- for it. You just
0: say it way more ethnic than yeah, I do. Yeah. I say it like so, a white guy. Uyghur.
2: So, <laughs> Uyghur. Yeah. So I, I th- that... Is an example of me not being a great fan of the Chinese regime. and But I try and give credit where credit is due and we've got to recognize that if we want the kind of world uh, that I hope we all want, which is uh, more peaceful, more united in a, in, a, in a spiritual sense, more multilateral, then we've got to recognize China exists and where they're doing good, like negotiating peace between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, we've got to say that's good,
1: you know? I got a question for you. So yeah. one of the things that's happening in the US is common sense is being seem like a bad idea. and Bad ideas are creating a lot of momentum because people are not pushing back. You said something earlier where one of the things you were trained to do was to debate and to teach others how to convert and debate, right? So, and and you saw, you said you saw some of that during COVID. That's why you didn't fall for it. We're kind of you know yeah. un- unpacking that, and we're seeing some of this woke ideology in the U.S. That's creating a lot of momentum, which makes no sense. How a woman who's been a feminist her entire life to defend women now a man who identifies as a woman is able to come and take the freedoms away from other women who that feminist once fought for which makes Zero. no sense right yeah. so how did you if you were trained how to convert people into possibly bad ideas which is what you did at one point how did you do that how were you so successful at it
2: how did i uh how did i uh convert people to these ideas?
1: Yes. What did you lean on? Did you lean on innocence? Did you lean on anger? Did you lean on rage? Did you divide? Yeah. What I, angles did you take? I mean,
2: look, that's, the, it, you've got to understand human psychology, really. And what you just said there at the end of that question is an example of correct what you, approach is, you've got to understand, if somebody's angry, then how do you manipulate and weaponize that anger by steering it? Now, I don't want to get overly complicated, so I'll give a, a, a more popular example, which everyone will get immediately. So we all, I imagine, watch Star Wars, right? Of course. Right, so uh, the way in which, through the prequels, you see Darth Vader become who Darth Vader becomes and and what happens to Anakin is an example of what I'm talking about. How you can weaponize and manipulate anger that comes from rage from, love. in Anakin's case, losing a loved one, right? So it, if you can sympathize with a human story as it's presented in... Star Wars, you can see in real life how that happens. So in a fictional character who loses a loved one to, uh, uh, I think, remind me, was it a natural death that um, um, Anakin's lover died of, whatever it was. Imagine you're in a war zone where your entire family's been blown up. It becomes incredibly easy to weaponize and manipulate that anger. Um, ISIS began in in the prisons in Iraq for example. Uh, so you've got a whole bunch of people whose country's been invaded and they're fighting an occupier and they're caught and they're put into jail. And of course they're angry. Uh, and that's where that anger was weaponized, again, when I say by the security services in ISIS's case. Um, up until ISIS, they were al-Qaeda fighters. So I, I think it's, whether it's anger, or every every emotion, every human emotion can be steered for the purposes of achieving an outcome. And it was done during COVID, fear in the case of COVID with COVID mandates. And again, everything I say, please, everybody listening, look it up for yourselves. Don't believe me when I say things like uh, we, we witnessed the uh, historically the largest and most sinister psychological operations campaign uh, inflicted upon civilian uh, uh, people by their governments uh, during the COVID era. This isn't again is no longer in dispute. Uh, the fact that the that whether the Twitter files have revealed it here in the U uh, in the U.S. or t- to, by way of an example, Matt Hancock, the health secretary's WhatsApp messages that were leaked revealed in the U.K. where he's like, "How do we make the people more scared?" Yep, yep. Ultimately, we witness- which we've
1: spoken about all of that on the pod.
2: That's right, yeah. and and the seventy seventh brigade that I first mentioned on the uh, JRE, but mentioned here again is the is a U.K. based. Uh, military operations unit called the, the 77th Brigade, which on their own website, they state that their purpose is psychological operations and they were engaged in this whole COVID situation. Twitter was infiltrated by uh, operatives in that way to manipulate our perception of, uh, of reality. So in the case of COVID, they did it with fear. In the case of extremism, you do it, for example, with anger. You could do it with love. I mean, I think the Spanish Inquisition was a manipulation of love, uh, interestingly enough, because the idea, you know, I will torture you because it's good for you and God will redeem you through this. And then when you're seeking heretics, it, the idea is you think that you're seeking purity and love. And of course, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And, and, but but I'm, no. I'm, I'm sorry. I want to go deeper in this. I want to go deeper. In go this. for it. You talk about the Leslie Stahl video. I just yeah. texted to you, Rob. If you want yeah. to play this, it's 23 seconds from 60 minutes. And, and you see decisions like this being made. This is in 2001. I may be off, but if you can play it. Together we, we have heard really that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than children died when, when, in, in Hiroshima. In
0: and, and, you know, is the price worth it?
2: I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it.
1: Okay. 1996, um, when this happened. Okay, if how can pause. old are you? Yeah, so that's another clip you got playing, Rob. Maybe okay. So uh, that was the first
2: Iraq. Yeah. So that that wasn't '96. That was the second clip. That just to be clear, that '96 was from a. Yeah. I think.
1: So so you know you think about decisions like that being made. Okay. We think it was worth it. Yeah. All right. You know, uh, uh, fear. Covid was fear. I agree. Love. You're doing this for God, and some people would say even. You know, religious extremists, hey, you're, you know, killing your life, you know, taking your life and God's going to be very happy for you or Kamikaze or, you know, all these other things that we've all uh, heard about. But I want you to go a little bit deeper if you can, because, you know, I I, I had a girl I hired, lady. She wasn't a girl, a lady I hired to be one of my copywriters years ago. Mm. And then one day we sit down. And two years later, after she's been working with me, she says, you know, I got to tell you why I took this job. I said, tell me why I took this job. Well, let me tell you my background. My background is I was one of those people that bought into a cult-like leader. And I said, who? And she mentioned it to me who the cult leader was. I said, you were part of that cult? I said, I was part of that cult. So what things happened? Well, we all, I, I, as a woman, I was married, but we had sex with this and this and that. And she's telling me, that as a married woman, her husband was okay, that other men of that member's... What convinced you of that? Because Mm. I was convinced we were doing the right thing and me and my husband, all this stuff. Typically, it comes from a place of wanting to be part of a community, Mm. right? Mm. This is happening and parents in America are very worried. Uh, Some of them that can't afford to send their kids to private school, they have to send their kids to public school. And in public school, this is happening. But if you can... I want you to go a little deeper. I know you were doing the Star Wars thing, and I know you kind of you know use that as the analogy. But I want you to actually you know tell us what it would sound like. For example, hey, how do you feel about the fact that such and such is getting all the credit and you're not, mm-hmm. right? Don't you hate it that you know they don't they don't really realize you're doing all the work behind closed doors? Without you, he would never be where he's at right now. Yeah. That's one method, right? Hey, did you see what they did to your family? Mm-hmm. We have to seek vengeance. We have to go back and do this, right? Mm-hmm. Can you actually unpack some of those recruiting methods?
2: Yeah. So um, you can break an idea down generally into the political. So with the purposes of uh, extremist recruiting, you can break an idea down into its political um, manifestation, its scriptural uh, uh, perspective as well, and a rational uh, perspective. So let me, let me break that down on the idea of democracy. We were, uh, we were trained to completely remove the idea of democracy as having any appeal to our target audience because clearly we wanted a theocracy instead now take the political it's very easy to do with democracy actually because it's been such a sham um, even here in America with Biden and the whole fudge with the election um, all of this is coming out the whole J6 stuff it's all it's all been a theatre but um you know I think that's by now it's how are people falling for
1: how are people falling for well because
2: people question. are in their echo chambers but uh, let me just because your question you've asked it twice let me go yes. into a bit bit of detail on that and then uh, clearly we come to the J6 and all that if you want as well but um uh, let's take democracy as an idea. Um, political, The political attack from our proselytizing perspective, our ideological warfare angle, it's easy to politically attack democracy. What I mean by the political attack is you take this idea and say, right, these people claim to believe in democracy, and yet they don't even adhere to it themselves. So, for example, is it how uh, can you claim that democracy is what you want for The Arab world, when you've just invaded and occupied a country, that's a political critique of the idea, and that would be easy to do because our actions have demonstrated that you know the hypocrisy there. The scriptural references, then, you know, again, depending on the person you're speaking. If it's a politically active person, you might want to come in with a political critique first. If you're talking to a religious person who's traditionally religious, and your and your aim is to politicize them, because traditionally uh, devout Muslims weren't politicized. Um, and and the faith had always been an internal uh, uh, thing, uh, but we used to politicize traditionally devout Muslims. So how would you do that? You would take scripture, because that's what they hold dear, as opposed to the political line. And the scriptural references, so you would uh, seek to convince them that there is a shortcoming or a misunderstanding in their idea of Islam. And Islam is founded on this key fundamental point of Tawheed Or the belief in the oneness um, Of the source Of the uh, uh, of, of Allah And so What Sayyid Qutb did in Milestones The book that you just showed on screen Is to take this idea of Tawheed or oneness And demonstrate that you as a Muslim Are falling short of your fundamental Religious obligation to Uh, to this idea of one Allah if you allow rival gods to be created in the form of these rulers and then you bring scriptural references to back that which is actually quite a revolutionary point which wasn't made in Islamic discourse before I'd say Mawdoodi he was the founder of Jamaat-e-Islam in um, the Indian subcontinent and Mawdoodi was followed then by people like Sayyid Qutb and Milestones And and nabhani who was the founder of Hizb The group that I joined But Mawduri was one of the first to make this point uh, The idea that passages such as Inni illa In the Qur'an Which mean uh, uh, the hukm is for none but Allah Now the word hukm here Could mean uh, judgment in the arbitration sense Or it could mean rule in the theocracy sense yeah, As in law now, what the modern-day recruiters would do is take that. I did as well. You take that passage and say, "Look, see, in the the rule is for none but Allah." So these rulers who are ruling with their man-made uh, dictatorial uh, laws are challenge are a direct challenge to Allah's rule. Yeah, and we have a complete system of governance that has been discarded by these dictators who have become idols before Allah and shirk or idol or polytheism is seen as the the biggest anathema to Tawheed or the oneness of Allah, right? So you can take somebody down that journey. Now the truth is this passage could not mean what we were teaching people it meant, it's impossible. Because the uh, idea of a unitary legal system imposing one law over all of society is a modern Westphalian European nation state idea. The idea of state, a state, yeah? Is a modern idea. It doesn't exist in traditional scripture. The word "state" in Arabic is "dola." You will, if you were to take a computer to scan the entire um, uh, all Islamic scripture to look for the word "dola" or "state," you could do it right now if you want. It just doesn't exist. It, it's not there. The closest you'll get is a word "dola" in the sense of the rotation of money, um, uh, and 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 debt. But there's no such word as "dola." Or, for example, nizam which means uh, system uh, or constitution, which means distour in Arabic. Right? These words are uh, conspicuous by their absence in traditional Islamic discourse, and that's not a that's not surprising because they are very modern political concepts in the first place. Uh, and so, when we used to take these words, that these passages like in il-hukmuh to say this means that the rule must be for none but Allah, and the constitution therefore must be based on Islam. We were basically imposing very modern, uh, uh, interwar, as I say, interwar European ideas onto traditional Islamic scripture to extract from that a political ideology. So that's the scriptural angle that you could take uh, as opposed to the political angle. Then there's the, I said, the rational angles to break down the problem inherent in the idea of democracy. Um, And that is an angle to say, look, you know, when Demos the idea of the Greeks, uh, the slaves couldn't vote. Um, who gets to decide uh, what you vote for, what, you, uh, what you're even thinking, because if you don't have money, you can't campaign. And therefore, democracy really is who gets to be the biggest billionaire. And that, this would be a rational critique of the idea, as opposed to pointing to its hypocrisy, uh, the political critique, or the scriptural uh, references that I just went through. So you can take any idea and break it down in those three for the purposes uh, of recruitment.
1: So how much of it is in the guy that can give the best argument? How much of it is in the guy that has the money? You understand, in you the sense the of what I'm, I'm
2: saying, asking. yeah, yeah. It, it's actually more than that. It's what the circumstances are conducive to. So if you if you're take Iraq, for example, it was a no-brainer, take Afghanistan, it's a no-brainer that the, um, that the jihadists are gonna win the argument there. I'm not gonna win an argument if you've got occupation forces yeah. in the, it's just, it's, I can be, a, 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 everything I'm saying today may sound really nice and smart, it doesn't matter. During the COVID period, I was saying this at the, the anti, my anti-COVID stuff, I was saying it on air to, I, I mean, it was a huge audience um, on the largest commercial radio platform in the UK. And my show was on a weekend lunchtime with over half a million listeners when people should be out having their weekend brunches. And it it didn't land. Why? Because when people are scared, they're not looking. I mean, instead I got sacked, yeah. right? Um, I mean, it landed in the sense, like obviously the argument in the end won. I think we won that argument in the end, and even if people haven't realized it yet, I think they will eventually. But at the time, it didn't change government. It didn't change politicians' thinking. It didn't change the people that needed to be influenced by that argument weren't listening because they were scared. If you're in under occupation, you're not going to listen to the Majids or the uh, my brothers that work with me on this kind of stuff, because if you're under occupation, you're angry. So those emotions, whether it's fear, whether it's anger, even love which can blind, if 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 the condi- if the conditions aren't conducive to what I'm saying, which is why I'm saying that the China negotiated peace between Iran and Saudi, or the Abraham Accords, this will all calm the situation down in the Middle East. And we need a calmer situation to be able to have these kinds of conversations.
1: So you know that's interesting. I mean, you gave a little bit of context. I I I wanted to get a little bit more strategic about it on how it happens because it's happening right now all over the place. Yeah. And people don't know how to fight against it. Do you want to,
2: the trans stuff, you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, Yeah. you know, it's not just, yeah, I want to talk about the trans stuff. I want to talk about all this stuff. But I want to know how to weaponize people to argue against it because they're cornered. So sometimes they're like, man, I can't say anything here. I feel like I got nothing to say here. So, But but while we're on this topic, before we get to that, I want to kind of unpack this one here. You know, you you take scripture mm-hmm. and the interpreter, whoever the pastor is, can take one and you know, spin it and say, This is why God said ten percent. But it, what he really meant is that if he gave thirty percent, then you're gonna know, okay, I gotta give thirty percent because the guy that you know, so I'm going to this church, man, instead of I'm making twenty grand a month, I gotta give the church ten grand a month because God's gonna give me so there are people that are very convincing. Yeah. People fall forward, right? Okay. You said the billions of dollars, the money. Uh, uh, it takes a lot of money, and whoever's got the money and is getting the, you know, the money to whatever party it is, they're going to be able to get the argument to go. Maybe a George Soros, you're seeing what they're doing with the money right now. You saw the moment Biden announced three major names came out that they're going to be supporting him financially. Soros' his son was one of them. What were the other two names that were on that list, Rob? It was so, Reed uh, Katzenberg, uh, Katzenberg, Reed Hoffman, and Lincoln. Soros. Hey, we're yeah. getting behind right. Biden, and we're going to defend him, and we're going to yeah. help him out. So this makes sense from the money standpoint, but I'm going to give you the opposite side on the religion to see yeah. if that's also applies to religion uh there's been if you look at the fastest growing religion right now on what's going to be the largest religion in the world 2035 Muslims are ahead yeah and it's not even close the way they're growing yeah you can pull up the stat that says how many per hundred Muslims per hundred people that are born how many are Christians I think you have the link you have it right here Mm -hmm. you you send it to me so if you want to pull that up it says per hundred people that are born. you got thirty-three are Christians, hundred birth. Thirty-three are Christians, thirty-one are Muslims. Okay, but per hundred that die, thirty-seven are Christians.
2: Wow.
1: Only twenty-one are Muslims. Mm.
2: Yeah, okay, it's a, it's a much younger demographic.
1: It's, it's a much-, much younger demographic. So by twenty thirty-five, it's going to be a very different thing. So, why do you think the religion, the Muslim, what argument does it have that's spreading the way it is today? where it's grown at the pace is it because it's demographic based or are they also coming into christian regions and converting them as well
2: so nothing i say here should be taken as definitive because it's such a diverse faith tradition sure but there are general observations we can make and one of them i'd start with is to is to understand there's no church in islam which is what our critique of the saudi regime has been about Um, it's the, uh, whether you want to call it the Wahhabi doctrine, that is the official established religion in Saudi Arabia, Mm -hmm. or the Salafi doctrine, people use Salafi, Wahhabi is seen as a bit of a pejorative, but actually it's because the name of the founder of that doctrine, um, Abdul Wahhab, that was his name, Wahhab. Um, The Saudi merger of religion and state in that sense, the reason we've just been through Ramadan and Eid, Eid Mubarak everyone, and the reason there were some Muslims celebrating on a Friday and some on a Saturday is because Saudi declared Eid by citing the moon for Shawwal on Thursday night. But other countries around the world, Nigeria, Pakistan included, Indonesia, Malaysia, or others, they said, we don't have to follow Saudi Arabia. Now, the reason I give that example, and they said, we cite our own uh, moon in our country. The reason I give that example is because um, there is no established church like the Vatican in Islam. And so in its origin from the days of, uh, Prophet Muhammad's passing onwards, there has never been a um, establishment version of Islam and in fact that's what the Islamists are attempting to create They're, they're attempting to reverse engineer uh, a a church in Islam but they don't realize they have more in common with Catholicism than they do with traditional Islam in that sense. Uh, the idea of theocracy is entirely alien to Islamic tradition. I'll give you the example of Turkey. So before the Ottoman caliphate um, was dismantled in 1924 after World War One, the system in place, the legal system in place they had there again, historically verifiable, it was called the millet system. The millet system, um, it was a legally pluralistic system. So you had more than one law operating in Turkey at any time. If uh, you had a dispute, uh, Patrick, you could go um, to a, if you were a Christian, you could go to a Christian arbitrator, which is why I said the word "hukum" actually means arbitration. That earlier passage I was citing, in il hukamu doesn't mean rule, it means judgment. In other words, arbitration. Hukum. Yeah. You can voluntarily go for your own arbitration. So you could choose a Christian, I could choose a Muslim. And that millet system meant that you had legal pluralism. Legal pluralism in the world no longer exists. Most countries are now uh, uh, unitary legal systems. They only have one law operating in the country because business won the argument. Business wanted legal certainty. You know, it's, it's more profitable to be able to predict the law. So business wanted legal certainty, so nation states emerged and you ended up with unitary legal systems. But in the Islamic tradition, the legally pluralistic system or the millet system existed because theocracy was alien to Islam. It's why I say the Islamists' attempt to bring theocracy into Islam has more in common with the Catholic Church. So what, why, in answer to your question, when there isn't an a established church, the faith is inherently a faith of the people and anti-establishment in the good sense of that word, a libertarian, in the libertarian sense of that word. So it's very appealing as a result because you've got a direct relationship with the source. And you don't have to confess to anyone else other than to the source. You don't have to, you don't owe anyone anything else. And you can choose who you follow based upon who you think is sincere, as opposed to the church imposing a imam over you. You can choose to go to your local mosque, or you can choose to go to another mosque if you don't like the imam there. There is no uh, membership to an institution. Now, why that's important is because I believe um, that's very attractive. People sense that all institutions become corrupted. I, I believe on an intellectual level, all institutions drift towards authoritarianism. And that's something that is inherent to systems that you cannot avoid. They accumulate more and more power, bureaucracies like efficiency. And because bureaucracies like efficiency, they, uh, over time, they self-correct for more and more efficiency, which means more and more bureaucracy, which means a larger and larger system. And if you if you look at the nature of systems and how they behave, they generally always drift towards accumulating more and more centralized power. Now, that can apply to a regime or to a system in terms of government, and it can apply also to a clergy or a religious institution. And what happens then over time is that whether you see with some of the recent scandals in the Catholic Church, uh, or you see the power grab through the mandates and the COVID mandate period, you end up with basically people becoming victims of that institution as it seeks to, over time, accumulate more and more power. And so because, again, I say these are general marks because Islam is such a diverse faith tradition, but in general, because there is no one Islamic church or clergy, uh, despite the Islamist attempts to create one, despite Saudi Arabia, despite Iran, uh, these are contested. They're not traditional uh, Islamic clergy in that sense, um, and they're not worldwide worldwide. Uh, so you have that sense of freedom and and, and liberation that, that a direct connection to the source brings. And I think that's a very appealing element of it. It means that uh, we can have a relational approach to the tradition. What I mean by relational is it's people to people. Now, I know th- this might sound a bit abstract. I want to focus on this for a second because it's so important. It's actually more important that people give credit to. And I'll give an example to, to indicate how I think it's so important. Technocracy. If you look at technocracy and if you look at the world, the way in which um, the globalist powers are seeking to suck all of our data, they recognize that our data is profitable. They recognize that actually we are valuable because of our data, which is why they want it all the time. They want what you're browsing, Patrick, right now on there. They want what's on your phone. They want your the patterns of your behavior because they can be monetized. Mm. Yeah? So for example, every time I use my debit card to contact pay, pay uh, say I, I purchase this bottle here and I make a contactless payment. And if, I am, and, uh, if I'm a creature of habit and I purchase one of these uh, at a certain time of the week before I go to the gym, Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say before I go to the gym, I drink one of these bottles of water. After I come out, I drink a protein shake. If you can get that pattern, you can time marketing to my behavior. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's a, that's where we've our seen data, the last
1: ten years. Yeah. That's right.
2: That's where our data becomes so valuable and,
1: tra- and track you too, you Know exactly where you are, yeah. what time you're going to be there.
2: Why is why is all that relevant to the point I was making in an answer to your question? Because what that really means is that that, that we've got to reevaluate society's what value is. What that really means it's real value is not the data and the money you can make out of that behavior. No, that's actually monetizing where the real value is. The real value is in the relationships I have, because what that data really is, is a marker in a point of time of a transaction I've made with another person. So actually the real value there is the transaction, which involved contact with other human beings. That's the value we're seeking to monetize. That's what relationism, it's an understanding that actually we are the value we, human beings, and how we interact with each other is what brings value to life. So if you can recognize that actually there's a better way of doing things and that rather than monetizing and turning every one of those uh, micro interactions on a relational level, into through looking at that through a lens of profit and turning it into a transactional thing, instead if we recognize actually the real value there is in the relation itself, then the relational understanding of life fundamentally can be very different. We can start realizing that we bring value in our human connections and in our relations <coughs> with each other which is why, for example, I make a point of leaving my mobile phone at home whenever I visit the mosque because I think that rather than sit there and ask people for their phone number, I have a conversation with human beings in a, place, in a sacred place, look at people in the eye and talk to them face to face. I deliberately, through the entire Ramadan, left this thing at home. Uh, because that, that it's, it's a gesture, and it's a small gesture, which won't have much of an impact, but it's to make a point there that the value is in the relationship. And I think an anti-establishment in a libertarian sense, in a good sense of that word, anti-establishment, an anti-establishment faith tradition recognizes that actually it's the human relationships that are important. And I think that's one of the most appealing things about it.